Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the, angel, than the angels. You crammed them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you know, the series that we're making our way through this term in Hebrews is called Better. And so far in the series, we've seen that Jesus is better than anything before. He is better than angels. And this week, he is a better sibling. I want to say from the outset that I'm a little bit wary of preaching on this passage uh, for two reasons. Uh, the first is, as you will have noticed, the passage is a lot about angels again, uh, which is not something that we think about. And given last week as well, I figure you probably had enough of angels for this year. Uh, so perhaps you're starting to wonder what the relevance is. The second reason why I'm a bit wary of this passage is because you'll have noticed that as Maddie read it out, there is almost no direct application. Most of us come to church, I think, and when we listen to a sermon, what we want to know is at the end of it, uh, how does this affect the way I live? We want to know how the Bible shapes the choices and the decisions that we're going to have to make tomorrow and the day after and all week. Yet instead of telling us how to live, what to do, Hebrews chapter 2 reminds us of who I am, who we are which actually I hope will be wonderfully refreshing uh, for reasons that will become obvious. 
Well, the passage itself is divided into two parts. Uh, You'll see I've listed them there on your handout. The first part, who am I, verses 5 through 9. And the second part, who is Jesus, verses 10 through 18. I'm going to talk about each of them in turn. Firstly then, who am I, verses 5 through 9. Pick it up with me there in Hebrews chapter 2. You need your Bibles open there on page 1705. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. See what the writer says. It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than angels, but you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Now, in putting everything under, their, under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, let me ask you, what's your week been like? Good? Bad? Average? Uninspiring? Whatever your week has been like, in verse 5, the writer wants to lift our eyes, you'll see there, to the world to come. And the centrepiece of what he has to say is in verses 6 through 8. That's the quote there. It's a quote from Psalm 8 in the Old Testament. It insists that the climax and pinnacle of God's entire creation is, wait for it, it's humankind. It's you and me. What the writer is actually doing is taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, to the opening chapter of the Bible, because there we saw God appointed humankind to rule the earth on his behalf. What an amazing prestige and honour and privilege. And even though our sin has robbed us of that privilege, so that our present experience is actually the polar opposite, our present experience of this world is of brokenness and of suffering, the extraordinary news of the gospel is that in the world to come, we will be restored to our rightful place of honour. Verses 10 through 18 will show the incredible lengths that God will go to to make that possible. But for now, just notice the comparison that the writer is drawing. He is saying that in the world to come, you and I will rule over everything. Even the angels who were originally made a little lower than us in eternity, they will be subject to us. And so here's the first blank for you to fill in on your handout. Who am I? I am made for supreme glory. I am made for supreme glory. Now, that's all good and well, Jeff, I hear some of you say. Uh, But to state the obvious, from verse 8, at present, we don't see everything subject to humankind. What we do see, according to verse 9, is Jesus. Now, it's worth noting that this is the first time in the letter that Jesus has been explicitly named. Until now, he's only been referred to as the Son. But for the first time, we're told it's Jesus who, like us, 
was made a little lower than angels for a little while. He even suffered death to experience what we will all suffer. But now he has been crowned with glory and honour, just as you and I will be one day. There's a little clue here that the trajectory for our ascension to glory will follow Christ's suffering now before honour and glory in the world to come. And so in the second part of the chapter, the writer is going to spell out who this Jesus is and what he has done and how that changes everything about us. So, point two then, who is Jesus? Let me read verses 10 through 13, the first half of this section. Pick it up with me there on page 1705. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I'll declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Now, this part of the letter actually contains an intriguing puzzle. An intriguing puzzle. See, back in verse 9, it said that Jesus was crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. But verse 10 goes even further. Verse 10 says that Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered. Which, of course, begs the question, was not Jesus perfect before? What about Hebrews 13, which will say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. In what sense has Jesus been perfected and perfected through his suffering? Well, I think the uh, sense here is of fulfilment, of completion. I think what the writer is saying is that because Jesus suffered and died, because he laid down his life for us, he is entitled to even greater honour, even greater glory. And actually, I think that's a principle that we Australians instinctively get. We're reminded of it every year on Anzac Day. That those who lay down their lives and suffer, they are worthy of even greater honour and praise. But whatever the exact explanation, the point that the writer is trying to make is that Christ's suffering is the key to his achievements. His suffering is the key to his achievements. And that sounds pretty strange to us. You see, instinctively, most of us, I think, would want Jesus to be not someone who suffers, but someone who is superhuman, a bulletproof, like a superhero, so that you know he will never fail. But the point the writer is making is that by suffering in the way in which you and I do, even to death, in sharing in our humanity, as verse 14 will say, Jesus is shown to be just like us. And that means that whatever he achieves can be effective for us. You see, unless Jesus is one of us, 
He cannot represent us. And so the benefits of his work do not accrue to us. The principle here is that a species cannot be represented by a different species. So if I give you an example, it's going to sound a little bit trivial. A dog is not worth the same as a cat. Now, or vice versa. Now, I realise that it sounds a little bit blasphemous, likening pets to Jesus becoming a man. But you understand the point. Unless he is like us in every way, he cannot represent us. Which means he must experience that one thing common to every person. He must die. But the most striking claim in Hebrews 2 is that Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, he is not just like us, he is not just a representative of us, he is not just human with us, more than that, Hebrews 2 is described as our sibling. Look there, verse 11. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus is said to be, verse 11, of the same family. Because, verse 10, we are all sons and daughters of God. And so because of who Jesus is, I can confidently say this about who I am. This is the next blank for you to fill in. I belong to a holy family. I belong to a holy family. Can you see how who Jesus is and what he does changes everything about us? You see, even more than being the pinnacle of creation, even more than being made for supreme glory... Hebrews 2 is telling us we have been adopted as children of God with Jesus as our older brother. Now we're going to come back to that image of family in just a moment. Uh, But before we do, we just need to look at what the writer does next. He expands on what Jesus has accomplished for us in becoming like us. Now, this is 14 through 18. Now, this answers the question, why did Jesus share in our humanity? Now, there's four reasons. See if you can spot them as I read out from verse 14, bottom of page 1705. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And for surely it's not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's just pause and linger for a moment over these incredible things which Jesus, our brother, has done for us. Broken the power of the one who holds the power over death? Check. Liberated us from the fear of death. We can't avoid it, but we can be unafraid of it. Check. 
atoned for our sins. Much as you try, you can't undo them, but you can be fully forgiven for them. Check. Helps us in our temptation. In fact, leads us not into temptation. Check. Above all, as we saw earlier, will bring us into the glory for which we were destined? Check. Now you might be wondering, why would Jesus do all this for us? Why would he go through all of that just for us? And the answer, according to Hebrews chapter 2, is this. Because we're siblings. And to borrow a popular sentiment... You'd do anything for your family. Although don't overlook verse 16. I'll get you to look at it there because it's the one verse I haven't said anything about. Verse 16 is going to remind us that what Jesus does, he does for his family, not for everyone. He does it for his family, not for everyone. So verse 16, surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. What Jesus does, he does for his family, not for everyone. Christ's salvation, you might say, it's available to all, but it's only effective in some. It's available to all, but it's only effective in some. You see that in two ways here. Firstly, Christ's salvation is for humankind, not for angels. Jesus didn't become like an angel to save angels. Which tells you, of course, how highly God must regard us. But secondly, Christ's salvation, according to verse 16, it's for Abraham's descendants, not Adam's descendants. His salvation is available for all, but only effective in some. Now, if you're here tonight as someone who's not a believer, then, to add my welcome to that of Jack's before, thank you for joining us tonight. We're delighted that you have given of your weekend to be with us to try and hear a little bit more about who this Jesus is. I want to acknowledge that what I've just said can sound pretty confronting. To say that God's salvation is not for all people in the end, not effective for all, sounds arbitrary, unfair, maybe even unjust. I realise what's at stake here. It's one of the reasons why in term three... We've actually given aside a three-week block of our teaching series to try and address this exact question, this question of God's choice. It's called election. And I'd love to invite you to join us at that time as I try to help us think it through. But for now, can I simply offer this? Can I invite you to come and join our family? Because in this family... We share the benefits that our older sibling, Christ, has won. He has defeated Satan for us. He makes us unafraid of death. He atones for our sins. He even helps us in our temptation. And he will crown us with honour and glory. If you're still wondering to yourself, why would Jesus do all this for me? Well, a tiny clue, I think, lies in the next verse, in verse 17. 
You see, verse 17, Jesus is described as being a merciful and faithful high priest. A merciful and faithful high priest. He is not just faithful. Faithful could imply he's the, that he's stoic or duty-bound. Above all, he is merciful. He is kind and compassionate. It's reminding us that in this family, the firstborn son doesn't elevate himself above everyone else. He stands alongside us. He becomes like us in every way, both in suffering and then in glory. I realise this is all pretty confronting, uh, even if you are a believer. And so let me say then, at this point, to the members of this church, verse 18 makes it pretty clear that the normal Christian experience is of temptation. The normal Christian experience is of temptation. Temptation to not trust Christ's promises when they seem so far removed from our present experience. In fact, if you don't think you can be tempted, can I say you've probably succumbed to the most dangerous temptation of all, that is pride and hubris? But don't be overly concerned. Verse 18 tells us Jesus is able to help those who ask. Once again, available to all, effective in some. Well, let me try and tie it all together then. Point three. At present, we do not see, but we do see Jesus. I want to finish this talk by um, talking a little bit about eyesight. Eyesight. As you can tell, I wear glasses. That's because I'm pretty short-sighted. I got my first pair of glasses when I was six, and uh, my script is now at minus eight. That's probably, of course, why the last of my three children got glasses this week as well. Without glasses, I'd need to hold my notes about this far away for me to be able to read them. Mind you, there's some benefits in being quite short-sighted. One is that um, I've never had to clean the shower. Uh, That's because it could be purple or green in there, and I wouldn't know about it. Uh, On the other hand, there are some challenges in being short-sighted. This pair of glasses that I'm wearing that I bought just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they cost me just over $1,000. Mind you, I'm not complaining, not in the slightest. It occurred to me as I paid for them that if I lived two or three hundred years ago with my eyesight, I'd probably be dead by now, probably eaten by a slow-moving yak or something like that. (laughs) Now, what's the point of my ocular confessions, you might be wondering? Here it is. Hebrews 2 says that because of our older sibling Jesus, we will rule over all things, even over angels in the world to come. But at present, we don't see everything subject to us. However, the one thing we do see is Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, made perfect through what he suffered. Hebrews 2 is reminding us of the tension of not having yet what one day we will have in completion and finality. To use the eyesight metaphor, therefore, what we need is the ability to see both. To see both our present experience and our future glory. 
It's kind of like needing multifocals. Multifocal lens that allow you to see both near and far with greater clarity. Now, it matters because if you don't see both, you will be led astray. See, on the one hand, if you can only see this world, you'll give your life aiming for something you will never achieve. You'll try to seek dominion over creation, which, now don't mishear me, that's not a bad thing. Conservation, sustainable preservation, they are good things, they are markers of faithful stewardship of this world that God has entrusted to our care. But this world has been irrevocably and irretrievably broken by our sin, which means our only lasting hope is for the world to come. On the other hand, if you can only see that world to come, you'll all too quickly give up on this one. You'll give in to temptation. You'll stop trying to live a godly life. You'll cease trying to desperately persuade unbelievers to be adopted into Abraham's family. So here's the question then. How do we see both? What are those multifocals? Well, Hebrews 2 says that the way to see both realities is to see Jesus. To see who he is, because who Jesus is changes everything, even who I am. You see, because of Jesus, I am his sibling. And this is the fraternal image I said I'd return to. And it's here I want to conclude today. In the New Testament, perhaps the strongest image of church is of a family. A family. Not just the same species, more than good friends or best mates, Family, kin, flesh and blood. Now, flesh and blood is how you describe your biological family, either by birth or, for some of us, in marriage. And it's how we are to describe other believers. It's how we are to see them. And so what I want you to do right now is I want you to actually turn to the person next to you and assuming you are not biologically related to them, look at them. Go on, do it now. Look at them. That person is your own flesh and blood. To coin a f- uh, sorry to a yeah to coin a famous song lyric, we are family. Because we share the same older sibling. I trust you can see that when we talk about 7pm being a great community, that's insufficient. It's true, but it's insufficient. Here at 7pm, we are not just friends with common interests. We are not just co-workers with a joint mission. We are more than lifelong buddies. We are each other's flesh and blood. Which actually makes me wonder if we ought to address each other in that slightly quaint, old-fashioned way 
Brother Jeff or Sister Maddie. Perhaps we ought to do so to remind us of what is our relationship with each other. Now, for some of us who come from Asian cultures, you're used to addressing your elders as uncle and auntie. It's a family image, but it's actually not enough. The most important relationship, the most important image, is of sibling. Now, let me ask you, what do families do? How do families operate? Well, here's some things that families do. They celebrate each other's achievements. They're proud of their sibling's success. Yes, I understand that in families there can be sibling rivalries. But they stick up for each other. In a scrap, think of a schoolyard kerfuffle where your big brother rides in to your rescue. But you know the most significant thing about a family? It comes back in verse 11. In verse 11 we're told, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In this family, Jesus is not ashamed to identify with you publicly. Even if you stuff up, No matter what you do or fail to do, Jesus will never hang you out to dry. I wonder what you're expecting in your week ahead. We've just had an election. Our country will change in some way. But this much is true. Whatever others see of us, Jesus is not ashamed. To use that eyesight metaphor one last time, when Jesus looks at you, he sees someone who was subject to the power of death, enslaved by the fear of dying, trapped in unatoned sin, prone to temptation, but he also sees a brother, a sister, for whom he will taste death to save you. Uh, That's why, given how I began this sermon, I actually think Hebrews 2 is the most wonderful refreshment for us tonight. You see, this passage has not been about us, it's been about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and why he's so wonderful. Hebrews 2 is not about my futile efforts, they lead inevitably to despair. Hebrews 2 is not about my apparent successes. They almost always lead to pride. Hebrews 2 is not about what I must do for Christ in his name. That leads to an overwhelming burden. I think the best thing about Hebrews 2 is that it has no direct application. There is no do this or do that. So it liberates us from any activism. Instead, Hebrews 2 calls on us to marvel at who Jesus is and how that changes who we are 
We are brothers and sisters with each other because we have the same better sibling. And so, let me read out chapter 3, verse 1. The very next verse, it's where we'll pick up next week. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is wonderful in every way. We thank you that we are part of your family. So we ask in this week ahead, despite all the challenges and distractions, help us to fix our thoughts on him. Amen.